We are go for launch. Okay, all flight controllers, let's play it cool. All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Hello and welcome to Space Boffins. We're recording live at European Astrofest 2019 in London. We didn't rehearse that at all. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. And Space Boffins is brought to you in partnership with the Naked Scientists. We are at Astrofest. Let's have another whoop. Excellent. Now, if I recall rightly, the last time we were here, we left several hundred pounds lighter with a telescope. We did. Um, we've hardly used it. Is that a common... <laughs> that's is not that, true. We've is, looked at the moon quite I often on it. I suspect that's a common theme. Uh, we've got some great <laughs> guests coming up, covering everything from asteroids and planets to Martian moons. Uh, let's start with a Space Boffins regular, and one of the organisers and hosts of Astrofest, Stuart Clark. Have you got a telescope? No. <laughs> ah, that's really interesting. Why not? Um, because it, for me, it would be like um, a gym membership. Um, <laughs> I would buy it and never use it. Yeah, that is the problem. And this is the man who writes astronomy books, astronomy blogs for The Guardian. You don't own a telescope. Yes, but notice that um, my column for The Guardian is always the most important thing to see in the night sky every week with the (laughs) The naked naked eye. eye. Now we've got it. Okay. How would you describe Astrofest? What is it? Um, Exhausting. (laughs) Uh, No, uh, Unique, I think. Um, I don't know of anything like this, any other gathering. It has been going for for more than a quarter of a century now. We've all been ageing with it. And we have people that have come every single year. So increasingly... Ah, there are people here on the front row who look way younger. And there are people who... um, 25. In fact, even 15, maybe. I did a show of hands yesterday about... Um, how many people had been to Astrofest before and how many people was it their first time. Uh, and it was lovely to see so many newbies here, um, you know, getting into it, discovering it all for the first time and really joining this, this family thing that we've got going now here at Astrofest. Do you think it can get a little bit over geeky, if you like, with the, with the hardware? You know, we talked about, I joked about the telescopes. There's a lot of telescopes on sale. There's a lot of this... Can you get into astronomy without a telescope, I suppose I'm asking? Yes, oh, definitely, because the, here at, the, at Astrofest, on our programme, we try to um, cover the whole range, really. So it, it is people that love observing the night sky. It is people that are superb at all the um, astronomical instruments that they can buy. But it's also the, the armchair astronomers as well, the people that love the, the, the mental stimulation of thinking about these vast realms. I'd like to point out, by the way, I'm, I'm sponsored by Jupiter. There we go. Oh, yeah, you're wearing your Ether My Jupiter Ether And you probably message. might not be able to see, but you'll be able to see close up. I'm wearing a, a, a solar system necklace. So I've got the solar system around my neck. And in one ear, I've got an earring that's a moon, a crescent moon, and the other I've got a planet. It looks like... So Saturn what you're ring. saying, Stuart, because people are just normal here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no geeks at all. No. <laughs> hey, we're out and proud. We really don't mind. 
Well, um, thank you, Stuart. Yeah, I'll let you go um, get lunch. And we're glad. Thank we're, you very we're much. We're very glad to be back here. Uh, one thing we have noticed recently is that Mars has uh, is back in the public eye again. Mainly, probably because it was just announced that the rover, the ExoMars, the European rover, it will be the first European uh, rover going on the Martian surface, heading there in 2020, and it now officially has a name. Who knows what it's called? Shout it out. Rosalind, exactly, Rosalind Franklin, which is, uh, quite frankly, an inspired choice because Franklin, as you probably know, is, is the woman whose work that Crick and Watson basically needed in order to unravel the structure of DNA. And the rover contains a drill that will be able to go two metres beneath the Martian surface, so it'll be the actual the first rover that will directly look for signs of life. Now, the uh, Japanese space agency, JAXA, also has a really interesting upcoming mission called MMX. It's set to launch in 2024, and that intends to bring back the first ever samples from Phobos, which is one of uh, Mars's moons. And here to tell us more about it is Elizabeth Tasker, and she's from JAXA's Institute of Space and Astronautical Sciences. What's your role in this mission? So my main role is to actually tell people about it. (laughs) (laughs) So JAXA have actually been in deep space for a long time, and we have a number of really exciting missions. But frankly, we're kind of bad about letting people know about it. So one of my roles on the MMX team is to make sure that our web pages are bilingual, that we have an English Twitter feed, and uh, to actually let people know that we're about to visit a Martian moon. Why did, uh, I mean, it, it, it is, I've, it's obviously never been done before in terms of wanting to go there and bring back a sample. What would the mission actually consist of? So the mission is going to actually look not just at Phobos, but at Deimos as well. So Mars has two moons, they're uh, slightly shrunken potato shapes. And uh, the MMX spacecraft will be looking at both moons remotely and exploring that circum-Martian environment, the orbits around Mars. And then it's going to collect a sample from Phobos, but also do a lot of analysis around and above the, the Martian moons. And there is plans now also for a rover. So it's going to send a rover down to the surface. How will it get that sample back? So the, uh, the spacecraft itself, I believe, is planning to touch down to collect that sample. Uh, Hayabusa 2, of course, our asteroid mission, is on the brink of collecting a sample. It collects it on February 22nd. And that will also be touching down on the asteroid surface to collect a sample and then lifting back up to return to Earth. And MMX will be, I believe, doing something similar. So this is collecting a sample from Phobos, not from the Martian surface? No, Phobos. Is it like an asteroid then, Phobos? I mean, we think it's a moon, but is it like an asteroid? So in terms of size, I believe it's fairly similar. But the gravitational environment is going to be quite different because, like, Mars is right there. So all these low-gravity bodies are immensely difficult because the gravity is almost negligible until it really isn't. (laughs) And so you have to make a very careful map of the gravitational field when you visit small bodies and intend to get up close and personal. So what what you mean is it can get close and then suddenly it's hit it. There's bad things can happen to good spacecraft is what I'm saying. Well, well, Mars is notoriously difficult to, to land and get to because of its atmosphere. Phobos and Deimos, the moons. Phobos means fear, 
Deimos means dread. It's a great choice for a mission. <laughs> We've got a lot of positive vibes about it, and we're not worried in the slightest. <laughs> and what is it then about Phobos that's, that's interesting from a, a mission point of view? Why, why go there? So the moons are a bit of a mystery in terms of their formation. In particular, there are two main ideas for how these guys came about. One is they're captured asteroids, and they definitely look like asteroids. The other one is that, like our own moon, there was a giant impact on Mars. Debris was thrown up, and then it coalesced into the two moons. And we're not sure which of these scenarios are true. I've been trying to get a Twitter hashtag going on this. You know, are you team impact, or are you team capture? But if we look at the composition of these moons, that should tell us, like, are they part of early Mars, in which case the composition should be very similar? Or are they actually asteroids, in which case we would have expected them to form further out in the solar system with a distinct composition? There's also interest from a human spaceflight point of view for the future in that because of the difficulties of getting down onto the Martian surface, many people are suggesting that it would make more sense to have a base on one of the moons as well. Absolutely, and the moons, because they orbit very close to Phobos, are in tidal lock. So you could basically sit on one side of the moon and not rotate around, so you would know your radiation environment, presumably, if you could model that. Also, Phobos has a, a bit of a time limit onto it. It is eventually going to spiral into Mars, so we only have you know, a few thousand million years or something to, to do this mission. <laughs> Um, so, just before you go, um, Hayabusa two. You mentioned it. Yeah. yeah. So you got this. You've got this actual capture of a sample coming up in the next few weeks. Absolutely, February twenty second in Japan time. It's actually late night twenty first uh, in the UK. And we've done a couple of surface operations already. We've dropped a couple of rovers, and we've dropped the um, awesome little shoebox laboratory mascot, which was developed by the French and German space agencies. And now the spacecraft itself is going down to actually an extremely difficult terrain on asteroid Ryugu to collect a sample. So uh, do wish us luck. We're going, to, we're going to be announcing this on our, our Twitter feed, and we've got web pages, and I believe we're doing a live web feed with an English translation over the time of uh, the touchdown, which is 8 a.m. JST on Friday the 21st. So I think that's about 11 p.m. the night before in London. Excellent. Well, I think we'll all be in bed under the covers on our, on our smartphones trying to hopefully find out that that all goes well. Well, best of luck. And it's really nice. It makes, it's a refreshing change, actually, to hear um, from someone who works at the Japanese Space Agency. So, uh, Elizabeth Tasker, thank you very much for joining thank you. us. Just to prove there is an audience in this room, uh, let me read an email from Eric Moraine from Wisconsin in the USA. I'm only reading it because of this first sentence. I absolutely love space boffins, writes Eric. Uh, when the latest edition gets released, it's the best day of the month for me. I did not make this up. <laughs> this is a real email. However, I'd like to offer one small correction. The name of the US city Houston in American English has a silent O and a pronounced E. So one could spell it phonetically as Houston. Hugh as in... I will use my axe and hew this log into a beam. Stun as in I will use my ray gun to stun the alien invaders. So this is a, an email from Eric. What do we think? Can we just practice that, please? That would be really helpful. <laughs> first just to of get all, this yeah, to... let's have the English pronunciation yeah, so we could do, first. If we could do a, just a, a Houston. A big, loud Houston. Three, one, two... Oh, I was doing a three, two, one. Countdown, it's space, yes. yeah. <laughs> uh, three, two, one... 
Houston. Now we're going to try the American, so this is the proper way of saying it, which is a Houston, okay? Three, two, one. Houston. Houston. Doesn't sound right, doesn't it? I I'm think not sure it sounds right. right with an English accent, but we should try. We but should that, be right. But that, to me, that would be like saying, oh, I'm just off to Paris. You, don't, you, you think, wouldn't you say it. Uh, you wouldn't say it. Well, let's have a quick vote. Who gonna... says we should say Houston with a O? Who? The Shout yes! Way. Shout yes! Uh, hands are going up. It's yeah, yeah. Yeah, hands don't work so well on the on the radio. So um, <laughs> if you could just shout, if you think you say it with an O, shout yes. yes. If we say it with a Hugh, shout yes now. Yes. Oh, it's going to oh, be Hugh. We've got to say Houston. We've got to say Houston oh, okay, from right. now on. We'll do so, our best. We'll do our Eric best. Eric Moraine uh, in Wisconsin. We will do our best to do that. This is the Space Boffins podcast. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, all over the place. Uh, our next guest works on one of the most remarkable science missions ever launched, New Horizons. Please welcome Simon Porter to the stage. There or there, which I don't really mind. Uh, now, um, New Horizons, uh, Simon, it launched in 2006. It got those amazing pictures of Pluto. And then it kind of went on to do more amazing, amazing stuff. I and mean, what's been your involvement in the, in the mission? You know, it, it launched in 2006, and then I came on the mission in 2014 right as things started to get interesting. So it was perfect. <laughs> um, and initially, I was mainly involved with looking for moons, more moons around Pluto. Pluto's got five moons. Very complicated system. We assume there might be more because we're already at five. Um, Hold on. Five moons? I never knew that. Pluto has five moons. Yeah. Well, in and real, it's a dwarf planet with five moons. It's a, it's a binary dwarf planet, so it's two dwarf planets or, orbit around each other, and then four more moons around them. Wow. Yeah. Um, Were you as blown away by those images of, of Pluto as everyone else? Yes. I mean, it, you just... The it's entire, just been a blob. The, I mean, the entire science team, I mean, we... We're just all uh, slack-jawed and just staring at these images. You know, in the geology room, we had a, a, a big board up, and it'd just be like, what's the crazy image that's on the big board this morning when you walk in? <laughs> you know, uh, there'd just be extraordinary things up there every day. And, and more than uh, just a dead planet. I mean, it, it's things going it's, on. It's it, is, it, is, it is one of the most active, alive places in the solar system. Not as in life, but as in geologic activity. Pluto is more active than Mars in a lot of respects. And we, we, you know, we study Mars because it's similar to the Earth, but atmospherically, uh, Pluto is kind of more similar to the Earth than uh, Mars is. It's a nitrogen atmosphere. It's got organic chemistry going on. It's got a haze layers. You only see hazes in three places, um, Earth, Titan, and Pluto. If we want to understand Earth's atmosphere... You need to study more than Earth's atmosphere. You need more examples, and Pluto's really great for that. Where does the energy come from for this for this movement? The sun. For this, from the sun, even that far out. Yeah, well, for the for the atmosphere, it's it's mm. the sun. Yeah, and um, Pluto has a very high obliquity, so it's you know the Earth it's twenty three degrees tilted from um, its orbit pole. Uh, Pluto is significantly more than that. <laughs> so sometimes it's basically pole on, sometimes it's basically equator on. It's kind of in between at the moment. But that's why we weren't able to see the entire southern part of uh, Pluto because it was just an internal night then. It varies across the surface. It actually gets more light at the poles than it does at the equator. And uh, things like to move around on the surface because of that. 
Which aspect um, are you particularly interested in? Because I know you do have a bit of uh, a focus. The small satellites. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the small satellites are really weird. Um, basically, we think that the Pluto-Sharon system formed like the Earth-Moon system from a giant impact. Um, so one thing hitting another and forming... Yeah, so you basically have two dwarf planets smack into each other. Um, one large one forms in the center, which becomes Pluto, and then a disk of material that mainly forms Charon. But then there's some little scattered remains from there, and that's uh, the four small satellites. Um, but like I said, this is like the Earth-forming impact, but Earth and the Moon don't have extra little satellites. So now we have, we've got two examples of this, and one forms little satellites and one doesn't. Um, and that really constrains how we can build the models for how you make uh, binary planets. Uh, let's go on to then MU69. So New Horizons moves beyond Pluto, and it's find, found this. What do you call this this double object that it's found? What do you, what do you call that? Oh, uh, it is. It has many names. Yeah. <laughs> the, the the official name uh, is four eight six nine five eight twenty fourteen MU69. Strange it didn't catch on, isn't it? The, the nickname is Ultima Thule, which... Uh, Has slight Aryan uh, relationships, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's not going to be the permanent name. No, I heard that, yeah. Uh, um, it's eventually going to another name. We don't know what the permanent name is going to be mm-hmm. yet. Um, personally, I always think of it as Object 11, because it's Object 11 from our survey. Uh, <laughs> None of these are the sexiest names, are they? But it looked to but be... But usually, I usually call it ME69. Yeah. Uh, it's... It, it's and that's that's a nice quick thing to say. When we were down doing occultations in um, Argentina, the Argentinians called it Moo, because mm-hmm. MU69. And that's quite nice. So <laughs> it looked a little bit like, when we first saw the photos, it, it was sort of reminiscent of Comet 67P, which was imaged by the Rosetta mission, in that it was two objects sort of scrunched together. Yeah. But whereas 67P looks like a rubber duck with a shape, it's got a large body with a little head on it, this more, looked more like a snowman. But then it turns out that snowman probably doesn't quite give the right description, does it? Yeah. It, it, it's, so we, we do have a lot of these comets. About two-thirds of the comets that we've visited with spacecraft look like they're two things glued together. So, and, and includes 67P, it includes Halley. Uh, it actually looks like a peanut too, and uh, Comet Borelli as well looks like a peanut. Uh, so, I, you know, we th- kept finding these things for comets, and the comet people were kind of confused: is this something that happens naturally and how these things formed, or does it happen because it's a comet and you erode from a neck, and that then that makes this sort of bilobate structure, two lobes together? Um, but it these turns aren't out spherical, one of them isn't right? spherical, is it? Well, yeah, yeah, and that's. That, that's part of the thing. It's, it turns out that we just happened to approach it from the South Pole, and uh, it's, it, the, the larger lobe is, kind of, is really flattened. Uh, the smaller lobe isn't so much, it's, uh, but the larger lobe, you know, it, it kind of looks like a donut hole and a jelly donut uh, <laughs> kind of next to each other. Um, and so the, the larger lobe is, is very flattened. And we don't. So it's more pancake. So rather than a, a, a spherical <laughs> object, it's more like a pancake yeah, it's, it's flattened. Wither, yeah, wither, so it's flattened wither. down. We just happen to approach it from an angle where you just see the the round side. But that's that's sort of cool, isn't it? Because in the same way that um, Comet sixty seven P brought up all sorts of, it, it made people go, "What? We weren't expecting that." You then obviously it can make the mission quite interesting because you've yeah. then got to change your flight plans and how you deal with the, the different gravity when it's a, it's an odd shape like this if you're you're going close, but. 
it opens up so much more science in terms of like you're talking about the origins yeah. and cosmic origins well, and I mean, where this, does it come uh, from. The, it, you know, this is why we go to the, the, these missions just to see things that we, we can't see from the ground. And um, you know, the only we had an indication that it might have this sh- uh, shape from the uh, occultations, and that's the only way we'll be able to do, measure that for other objects uh, in the Kuiper Belt because it takes so long to get out there. But we, we go to mis- these things with spacecraft to see things we can't see from the ground, and uh, the shape is certainly one of them. Uh, and is it going to see anything else now? As New Horizons have passed, anything it's, interesting? Was it on its way to something else? We're, we're moving out of the Kuiper Belt. We're in the middle of the Kuiper Belt now. We're in the, the very dense part, and so once you leave the dense part, you're, not in, the, you're in the less dense part. <laughs> and, and there's, uh, to use a technical term. Yeah, there, there's less objects. So uh, we, the, the, the number reduces... We took a whole bunch of data last year. We need to actually sort through it and look through it. We're, we're looking, and um, if we find something, we'll go to it. But if we don't find something, then uh, obviously we can't. Simon Porter, thank you very much for, uh, for joining us. Yeah. Thank you. Our next guest uh, has, is also with... We're lovely to have you back. Um, she's been on Space Boffins before. She is part of the Bepi Colombo mission, which is on its way to Mercury. And you may also recognise her as the winner of So You Want to Be an Astronaut. Please welcome Dr Susie Imber from the University of Leicester. Oh. <laughs> Excellent. Now, um, just bring us up to date with, um, you know, what stage are we at of the mission? Because there's quite a journey before we get there. Yeah, it's a really lengthy journey. So we launched on the 20th of October. Uh, The launch was very successful. We've been testing our instruments since we launched to make sure it's all going well. Uh, And we now fly past the Earth in 2020, and then we start flying past Venus a couple of times, and we swing past Mercury six times, and then we finally arrive in December 2025. So it's really early days of our mission so far. It it seems quite weird, really, doesn't it, to think that it's it's launched a few months ago, and in uh, next year we're going to be saying hello. I know. It seems a bit counterintuitive, doesn't it, that we've launched it and it's coming back again, but uh, we have to fly past the Earth first before we head for Venus. So, and what do you do? Sorry, I just want to ask a quick question. What do you do while it's on its journey? Is there anything you can do? Is it just a question uh, of waiting? Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, it depends on uh, which instrument team you're working with. So, our instruments on board the Mercury Imaging X-ray Spectrometer. Uh, basically points into another piece of the spacecraft, so we can't take any measurements en route. Um, We've got a calibration source on board, so we can test that our instrument's working properly, and we'll check in with it every six months or so. So kind of wave and say hi, and it'll wave back, and we'll keep going. Um, But some of the other instruments will be switched on, so they'll be taking data during the cruise phase. So for you then, it feels as if it must be the easiast job in the world. You know, you've, well, you've, done, this, you've done this instrument and you'll just have a little bit of a snooze for seven years. Yeah, there's quite a lot to do in the meantime. We yeah. can't just, you know, hang out for a while. We've got, uh, we've got to be prepared for when the mission actually arrives. As soon as it gets there, of course, and goes into orbit around Mercury, we're going to have data flying back from our instruments and our team is going to have to be ready for that. So we're going to have to make sure that we're ready to calibrate the data and prepare it and then release it. Uh, for other scientists and, and people to use. So actually there's quite a lot of work to be done between now and December 2025. And, and what do you personally hope for you it, to get out of this mission? You know, if everything goes according to plan, it's a very ambitious mission. Mm. It's got two orbiters, not, not one. We've got one from um, Japan and, and the European orbiter. What, 
what ideally would you like? Well, there's two things that I'm really interested in. The first is the primary goal of our instrument is to tell us what the composition of Mercury's surface is. So at the moment, we have some ideas about that. Uh, we've been using data from the previous mission to Mercury called Messenger, which was there in 2011 to 2015, so some time back now. So we have an idea about what it's made of, but actually there are so many open questions about the surface of Mercury. There's some material that we have no idea what it might be, and we're hoping that we might just be able to get some hints about that with our instruments. So that will tell us really a bit more about the formation and evolution of Mercury over its lifetime. So this is pretty important information. But um, I'm also a magnetospheric scientist, so I'm interested in the um, interaction of the solar wind with the planet, with the planetary magnetic field in the surface. Um, and, and Mercury's unusual in, in that respect. It is, it? absolutely. It's got a weak magnetic field. It's very close to the sun, so it's a really dynamic uh, magnetosphere. The magnetic field is slightly strange. It has some odd properties that we weren't expecting. Um, and we've just discovered that we see a phenomenon on Mercury which we're calling the X-ray aurora. It's like the aurora that we see on Earth, but we see it in X-rays at Mercury. Wow. Um, yeah, and so hopefully with our instrument we'll be able to detect that as well, and that's going to tell us a lot about the dynamics of the system. So, so that's got to be something to do with the magnetic field, has it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we have, we have at the Earth, we have, uh, we have particles that get accelerated down magnetic field lines towards the planet, and then they hit the atmosphere and make it glow, and that's what causes our aurora. But at Mercury, there's no atmosphere, so those particles hit the surface, and the surface gives off x-rays. And uh, this was discovered only a few years ago, so we're really looking forward to studying that more. It's, it's interesting, actually, but you, know, you mentioned the messenger, the NASA messenger mission to Mercury, because when you look for images of Mercury, there are surprisingly few, mm. and the few we have in detail are from that mission. I mean, are you hoping that in the same way that New Horizons has completely transformed our knowledge of, of Pluto, that this mission is going to do the same with Mercury? Or is it more stepped, you know, a, a little fi- more finer detail in terms of knowing more about Mercury? That's a good question, and it really depends on the discipline that you're thinking about. Um, there's lots of different aspects of Mercury that we're going to be addressing. But if you think about it, Messenger was the first mission to orbit the planet. And so if you're doing a first orbiter, you send a suite of instruments with some idea about what you might see, but you don't really know for sure. And then the next mission, Bepi Colombo, now we know what we're expecting to see. We can design instruments slightly differently based on our our superior knowledge. And so I actually think it's going to be a, a huge change in our knowledge of Mercury when Bepi Colombo arrives, partly because there's two spacecraft, which we've never had before. And so one of them is, is designed to look at the surface in huge detail, and the other designed to look at the magnetosphere. And we don't have to compromise the way we did with a single spacecraft mission. Can I ask you one non-Bepi-related question? How are your astronaut ambitions going? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I, since the show, I decided that uh, while I'm waiting for the European Space Agency to... So I probably uh, should say, you won the yeah. competition to be an astronaut. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, which was a BBC programme. Yeah. So the, the prize was not a ticket into space, sadly. Um, the prize was a letter of recommendation from Chris Hadfield. So the next time the European Space Agency are looking for astronauts, I'll have a nice letter recommending me and some experiences that might help me with the application process. Uh, but they haven't put out a call for astronauts yet. And so what I've been doing is obviously working on Pepe Colombo, but also launched a big sort of public engagement programme. Um, I've spoken at 170 schools in the last year, 35,000 children, to try to encourage them to think about taking up science and doing STEM subjects. So that's really taken over, and that's really been a direct result of the show.
fantastic. And, and you're a fantastic role model as well to show young girls in particular that here's a fantastic career to aim for. So, so I talk about my career, which is great, but I also talk about climbing mountains and all the other things that I love to do in my spare time encouraging Do you them. fly, though? Do you Can I fly planes? Yes. No. Oh, now, I think, you know, Sue's hint... <laughs> that's, that's what they all seem to have as a pilot's license, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. I'll work on that. I'd save you pennies. Yeah, well, that's Start the problem. Start learning to fly. <laughs> Thank you. Fly. Thank you very much all indeed. Right. Dr. You. Susie Imber. Well, thank you to all our guests, Stuart, Simon, Elizabeth, and Susie. Uh, you can reach Space Boffins on Facebook, Twitter. I think we're on Instagram, aren't we? Yeah. I haven't I, checked I, recently. Yeah. We're I probably forget. on Instagram. I keep yeah. Sorry. And, uh, and via email, we will try and say, can we just try one more time at Houston, please, just for Eric in Wisconsin? Uh, so if I could do a three to one, if you all could say Houston no. beautifully. Hello, Houston. Oh, yeah. Hello, Hugh. Hello, Hugh. How about Houston, we have a problem? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. let's do that. Houston, we have a podcast. Okay, let's do Houston, we have a podcast in... So we're clearly making this up as we go along. Houston, right, okay? Houston, we have a podcast in three, two, one. Houston. Oh, you could do that better than that. Let's do one more time. Louder and with more feeling on the Houston. Okay, three, two, one... Houston. Very good. Thank you very much. That's the Space Boffins podcast. Uh, do get on touch, as I say, on Twitter, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, I said that, haven't I? <laughs> Twitter, Facebook, email. Just, you know, we're approachable. Come and talk to us. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. And thank you to Astrofest, European Astrofest 2019.